1: Hello everyone, I'm C.B. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Joanna Fitzpatrick about her novel The Artist's Colony, set in Carmel, California in 1924. We've traveled a long way from our last junket to pre-World War II England, but this novel too is a whodunit. Sarah Cunningham, a painter on the brink of a breakout one-woman show in Paris, is summoned back to the United States by the news of her sister's unexpected death. Saturday, July 19, 1924. The screaming iron wheels of the Overland Express awakened Sarah to her alarming circumstances. She blinked several times until her eyes accepted the morning light. Normally, she would have admired the radiant emerald green and amber patterns cut into the stained glass window of her Pullman compartment, and considered how to capture their radiance on canvas. But today wasn't normal, and she doubted her life would ever be normal again. Not after receiving a telegram at her garret in Paris informing her that her sister, Ada Bell, had drowned in the Pacific. And now here she was in a tiny room on wheels, coming to a halt at San Francisco's Union Station. Two weeks ago, this death-by-decree telegram from the Marshal in Carmel-by-the-Sea showed up under her door just as she was raising her paintbrush to her canvas to start the final painting for her one-woman show at the prominent Nuit Gallery in Paris, and her first measurable success as an artist came to a screaming halt, just like the wheels of the Overland Express. And now, please join me in welcoming Joanna Fitzpatrick. Hi, Joanna. I look forward to talking with you today. Oh, good! I look forward to talking
2: to you too. This
1: is your third novel. How did you get into writing fiction?
2: I started writing fiction when I was a little girl, uh, sitting around a campfire, actually with other young girls at a a summer camp. Um, I was very shy. Uh, I was the last one picked for for games uh, and athletic sports, so I kept pretty much to myself. But I found when I went to summer camp that I could spin a, a scary story and get great attention from the other girls. And I became very popular in doing that at at campsites uh, in the evening. So I wrote well, a story of basically a story, the same story I told over and over again, but I would keep adding adjectives to it and different things to make it, to see them squirm more. And I, I loved it. I just loved that. Uh, interaction uh, or, and also just getting attention for something that I could do well. So that I began there, but that was very short-lived. That was the, when I look back and people say, well you always a writer, that is all I have as a credit in my youth uh, as a writer. And then I uh, became a, a, a wife and then a, and then a single mom. and from that I started working in Hollywood I grew up in Hollywood. And I was uh, my job trying to make a living was to transcribe insurance documents so people had car accidents and they reported and they were interviewed and I would take those oral interviews and transcribe them into writing so I became very fast very fast typist and at a party once I met a scriptwriter and told him what I did and how fast I was and he hired me um, to be a transcriber for him. His way of writing was to work with himself and two other writers and they would, he would sit in a room and they would start and I would transcribe everything they said. And then my job was to take all that they said and try and make it a little clearer. And out of that, um, this script writer, uh, you know, taught me a lot and taught me how to use the script format and how to look at things like, like like a camera, like I was the camera. And from that, I learned a lot about writing and about scene making. So that was my second foray into being a writer. Um, but I had to make a living. So I left I left that and, and went to music management, which I did for many years. And, and then as an older woman, finally, I was able to go back and finish my education and become a, a serious writer, which is what I've been doing now for many years. So that's... That's my writing story.
1: Tell us a bit about The Drummer's Wife and Catherine Mansfield, the books that preceded this one.
2: Um, My first novel was uh, based on the life of a short story writer, Catherine Mansfield. And... um, I came to that, well, I do spend my summers in France and have and have for many years. So after I graduated from Sarah Lawrence, uh, I was looking for, I wrote a memoir for my thesis at Sarah Lawrence. And I was, after I graduated, looking for a project. I was in France and I went into a small bookstore um, and found on the top shelf, with all French books, that on the top shelf was a book of English books. And on the spine was uh, Catherine Mansfield collected stories, which I picked up because when I was studying at Sarah Lawrence, I studied a lot of Virginia Woolf. And I knew that Virginia Woolf uh, thought that Catherine Mansfield was the only writer she was ever jealous of. And that really tweaked my interest when I saw this book because I had never read anything of Catherine Mansfield. So on the plane, I read extensively every from you know the front page to the back page of this collection plus a biography of Catherine and by the time I got back to New York I knew I had my story that this was something I wanted to write. I wanted people to know about Catherine Mansfield because she's very well known outside of America. She is originally from New Zealand and she was known in England and in France, but not in the States and I thought, wow, what a terrific story, what a talented writer and I wanted to, uh, to let people know about that in America. So I spent several years getting to know Catherine Manfield. Uh, and once I felt I knew her well enough, I wrote a story, uh, third person, but from her point of view, the drummer's wife came next. Um, my husband um, unfortunately became very ill and was, uh, it was determined that he wasn't going to make it as uh, of his disease which is called multiple myeloma it's a blood cancer and i you know got pretty scared about my future and decided um to write a story about what it would be like to be on my own to be a widow and that's how drummer's widow came about Uh, fortunately my husband survived his cancer and is with me now but that was the seed of the story and that was a contemporary novel that took place in new york probably the most autobiographical of my books. So those are my previous novels.
1: I'm so glad that your husband survived. I mean, that must have been a really scary time.
2: <laughs> it was a very scary time, and what happened is that, and it's so great I can easily talk about this now, is that what, just before The Drummer's Widow was to come out, and we kept you know, talking about it, you know, she really called The Drummer's Widow, maybe it's The Drummer's Wife, uh, But it just, it was The Drummer's Widow was what I wrote. And he got a second cancer and he was terribly ill again. And we didn't think he was going to survive. And I'm with him and I'm saying, really, I don't think I should release this book. I think it's inappropriate um, to come out with a book called The Drummer's Widow. But he insisted and he survived the second cancer. And uh, I, I released The Drummer's Widow. Catherine
1: Mansfield also indirectly plays a role in this new novel. We won't say what it is because it would be a spoiler. But uh, what is it about her that speaks to you?
2: Well, Catherine Mansfield is a very strong personality. In fact, some people have a lot of trouble reading Catherine Mansfield um, because she's not always likable. Um, and she's also very egocentric. And for me, Catherine, once I knew her well, and took on the responsibility to bring her back to life again. She has stayed with me ever since. Uh, she's part of my life and she likes me to talk about her because when I talk about her, she's alive and she will come to me and you know, say, what about me? So when I was writing the artist colony, um, she died in 1923. Unfortunately, of tuberculosis at a young age. Of, I think she was 34. Um, she came in. You know, what are you doing? You know, why aren't you talking about me anymore? And I was thought about that. I thought, well, of is perfect. She dies in 1923. My next story takes place. Not planning it in 1924. Why can't Catherine, uh, be mentioned in this story? I also have a a strong interest in artist legacies and what happens uh, to that person who has to take the responsibility of someone's work after they pass. That happened with Catherine Mansfield with her husband. She was, so Catherine Mansfield has, is always there with me and I decided to put her somehow into the story, plus my interest in artist legacies. Her husband, uh, John Murray, was responsible for her legacy after she passed and she had told him, don't write about anything other than my best work. I don't want anything published other than my best work. And he did not follow her instructions and he published everything that Catherine Mancho ever wrote which is why I could write such a good story about her, because I knew so much about her. But in other ways, perhaps he should have followed her wishes and and not have written so much. So the artist's legacy in in The artist Colony is that my character, Sarah, uh, promises her sister, Ada Bell, not knowing that she's going to die, she promises to be her, take care of her artwork after she passes, which becomes uh, the truth and very difficult for, for Catherine, excuse me, difficult for Sarah to do that because she has her own career. And this is going to cause her conflict. Uh, It's going to be difficult for her to work on her own work when she has to take care of her dead sister's legacy.
1: You tell us straight away that Adabelle Davenport, the woman whose purported suicide drives the novel, uh, has some connection to the artist Adabelle Champlin, who is a historical figure. What can you tell us about Champlin, in particular, how her life inspired this story?
2: So Ada Bella Champlin was my great-aunt. Um, she was a landscape painter who lived in Carmel's Artist Colony in the 1920s. I didn't know anything about this. I, I had a painting of hers um, that I'd been carrying from house to house on the East Coast. And then when I moved to California and hung her painting up on above our fireplace, several people would tell me, you know, that was painted near here. They recognized parts of it. Um, and I looked at the painting and realized the connection and became curious about Ada Bell and what she was doing in Carmel, California back in the nineteen twenties. From that I started researching Carmel, the artist colony in nineteen twenty four and became enraptured with the story. So she was the seed that got that got me interested in finding out more about Carmel's artist colony. Um, And then when I was working on that, I kept researching her life because I knew nothing about her at all from the family. Only the paintings existed. So when I was researching Artist Colony, I found out more about her. She had built an artist studio in 1926 in Carmel, and I went in search of that. Art studio. I didn't think I'd find it because the most of, unfortunately, Carmel has changed a lot over the years, and the original cottages are mostly gone or renovated. But I found it. I found, I found her home, and uh, I met the artist who was living there. The studio is almost as it was in 1926. Only three artists have lived in the studio. And the third artist has become a very close friend of mine, Belinda Theodore. And uh, from that, the story just took off. Once I found that art studio and knew that my great aunt had lived there and stood there and felt her, uh, that was the beginning of the story. Yes. So she had that influence on it.
1: So there are obvious differences uh, between uh, your Ada Bell and your great aunt, uh, who, fortunately for her, uh, didn't die until 1950, whereas poor Ada Bell bites the dust in 1924. So who is your Ada Bell uh, now, blessed with the new surname of Davenport?
2: Right. Well, she is is a painter, um, and I placed her in the same artist colony, and I placed her in the studio that my great aunt had built. Otherwise she is entirely her own person. Um and because I know nothing more about Ada Bell Chaplin, Ada Bell Davenport is, is a creature of my imagination.
1: So um uh, but your main character though, as I've mentioned, is Sarah Cunningham. Uh I assume she is entirely fictional, is that so?
2: Yes. Sarah is entirely fictional. Though Using getting into historical fiction a bit, uh, she is made up of many of the the artists that I researched during that time that lived in the artist calling in the 1920s. So I wanted to make her as believable as possible as an artist of that time. So I would say she's a mix of many real artists, uh, plus my imagination.
1: What do we need to know about Sarah then as a personality? How did she become your protagonist?
2: The 1920s was a really exciting time for women artists, so that was a great place to start with. Um, after World War One, um, women were, you know, had taken off their corsets, and, and more than just taking physically off their corsets, they were really breaking free of the restraints of their culture. Um, so I, yes, yeah, so, so I wanted a strong protagonist, and I was able to create Sarah because of that period of time. She represents, I'd say, a woman's history of emancipation in the 1920s. She can be very gracious, but she has a strong female spirit. She becomes unhinged when she is confronted with injustices and unfairness toward others. And she gets rather upset when she feels the force of a male authority trying to stop her from finding out the truth about her her own sister's death. Her
1: relationship with Ada, as uh, can happen with sisters, is at once very close and conflicted. Uh, why is that?
2: Well, first of all, they're sisters. <laughs> Having two sisters of my own, I think that there always is a very close and conflicted relationship with your sisters. Ada, uh, in my story, Ada Bell was is a very famous landscape artist, and and Sarah takes a different artistic direction and has moved to Paris to study modern art and to get away from her sister's fame and overpowering influence. But she also knows that her sister's, was through her sister's encouragement and her financial support, that she was, she was able to become an artist and to live in Paris. So she's terribly indebted to her sister. And she loves her sister. They grew up together. They, had, they were uh, orphans at a very young age, and uh, Ada Bell really was a mother to Sarah. But this causes conflict, and uh, Ada, being the older sister, believes she knows best for her little sister, even when it comes down to what she paints. Sarah resents her for that. And she also resents when her sister passes that she is uh, stuck with taking care of her legacy. That was not in her plan. Yeah.
1: Sarah has left Paris uh, weeks before she's about to make a name for herself after years of trying. Uh, she arrives in Carmel-by-the-Sea. What does she make of the place?
2: Well, for Sarah, she, her sister had often written her from Carmel. Her sister was a, a, a well-known artist living in, in New York, and why she came to Carmel was a mystery to Sarah, because she was famous in New York and she lived this fantastic life, and why well, go to a remote village called Carmel, but when she got there uh, and saw the beauty of this area of the world, and it was like everywhere she turned, she was seeing a painting of her sister's, so it was like sort of walking through an art gallery of her sister's work, but unfortunately, like all idyllic places, uh, there was something brewing underneath, there was a darkness that she became aware of. Um, that she could not ignore. So, as beautiful as Carmel was, there was the dark side that she had to to also uh, investigate.
1: And the dark side is really that Ada's death has been ruled a suicide. Um, what were the circumstances of her death that convinced the local marshal to close the inquest before Sarah even arrived in town?
2: well, he was he was uh, he was a marshal who did not really investigate. He sort of just, uh, he Knew that she was a bohemian artist, Ada Bill was a bohemian artist, and that alone placed her in a category of possible suicide. At that day in time, artists, particularly bohemian artists, had found it, it almost a popularity to carry cyanide with them uh, for the possibility that they got disappointed by their work, that nobody bought what they made, that they weren't being recognized for who they were. Not that many of them took cyanide. It was more of almost like a fashion. Um, and Ada Bell did wear a, a chain around her neck with a, a cyanide pendant on it, a pendant filled with cyanide. So he just, uh, in his way, he's pretty limited. He is probably my most stereotypical character in the book. Uh, he has limited limited ideas, and he just assumes and he thinks that's enough to assume. And then his, her assistant and others who had known Ada were witnesses to Ada being high, strong, even hysterical. And there was a sui- not suicide note uh, signed by Ada Bell, or so he thought she had signed it. So these were his, that was what he used as evidence at the inquest.
1: But Sarah Sarah struggles with that verdict from the beginning, and she soon encounters people in the community who doubt it as well. Uh, What are the factors that point to an accidental death or even murder?
2: First of all, Ada had no reason to kill herself. Uh, Ada was, as I said, uh, and to be a famous artist at that time, a woman artist, uh, was phenomenal. She actually had one of her pieces of work in the the Met in New York. She had just uh, finished a collection of portraits, that uh, she was very excited about. It, it was a change for her because she'd been always doing landscapes and seascapes. She was very excited about an exhibition she was going to have in New York in the next few months. And uh, there were people who would be enriched by her death. So, more Sarah learned uh, than there is something else that she learns that I'd rather not mention, let people find out when they read the book. But for this other reason in particular, she says, absolutely not. There's no way my sister killed herself."
1: Some of the secondary characters in the book are fictional, but others, uh, such as the poet Robinson Jeffers, are not. Uh, It's not always easy to guess who is in which category because they blend seamlessly into the whole, for which I congratulate you. Um, Could you give us a quick guide as to who is, quote unquote, real and who is not?
2: Yes, and I did. Uh, in the book, uh, in the back, there is a note on sources uh, of which I do mention the names of, of every character that were real in the story that I had researched. And uh, one is uh, Mary Austin, who is a marvelous uh, novelist at the time also she also wrote memoir fascinating character uh so that is Mary Austin Louise Brooks was a uh, excuse me Louise, yeah, Louise Brooks was an actress a uh, beautiful actress uh that came to Carmel she she comes to Carmel but she never really did come to Carmel she's uh, that's the fiction of it but she was a real person August uh, Gus Gay, Armand Hansen, William Rochelle were all uh, artists that lived in Carmel at the time. And then the uh, wonderful uh, Robinson Jeffers and his wife, Una. Robinson Jeffers was a pacifist and a poet. He was uh, often uh, rejected by his community because of his (laughs) pacifist. I'll never say that word right, but he was a pacifist. And history was fascinating. He built he built a, a stone house out on the edge of Carmel before anybody lived there. If anyone knows Carmel now, uh, it's very crowded, and there's this, it's called Scenic Drive, and there are hundreds of cars driving by every sunset every day, lots of traffic. But at that time, it was it was a field. It was just a giant field with his rock house, and then he built a tower himself next to the house, which is called the Hawk Tower and lived there. So it was, in Carmel, just generally just to say this, it is a gorgeous place. And there are so many historical buildings that still exist today. And Carmel might uh, might have become very commercial and filled with tourists, but at the same time, they have a huge respect for their history. So when I was writing the book, it was great to find out, to go to all these locations and find out the history.
1: Now, Rosie, who is a fictional character, is the owner of a boarding house where Sarah stays until she moves into her sister's abandoned cottage, which is the the cottage that you mentioned earlier, um is one of and Rosie is one of Sarah's strongest supporters. What can you tell us about her?,
2: Rosie is a marvelous Irish character. Uh, I'm Irish, so uh, so I like having Rosie in the story. She migrated from Ireland uh, to get a degree at Berkeley. Uh, Her parents were both Irish and uh, were educated, well-educated, but at the time, she couldn't get a good education in Ireland, so her parents did send her to California, where she went to Berkeley, which was really difficult because at that time, very few women were allowed to get degrees in, in America, and Berkeley happened to have a program that women were invited to be educated and sit in the classrooms. So she became a professor, which was phenomenal at the time. And and her interest, because of her coming herself from Ireland, she had a strong interest in immigrants and particularly the Asians who settled in Monterey. So she's a very smart and educated woman, but she also loves crime novels. So there are moments when you're not sure if uh, Rosie knows for sure that Ada killed herself or didn't kill herself. But she really thinks she was murdered. And Sarah's a little suspicious at first just because Rosie has such a love for crime novels. But I put her in there. Well, one reason I wanted an Irish, older Irish woman, Rosie, and also because of my interest in the immigration that was going on in California at the time. And I thought having a character who understood that and had studied it and had a degree in immigration in California would be an asset to explain things when in the story itself.
1: A particularly appealing character is Serena, another artist who worked as Ada Bell's assistant. Uh, she and Sarah develop a rather complicated bond. Uh, how would you describe Serena?
2: Well, I don't like to talk about Serena too much as she is a pivotal character in my story and I don't want to give too much away. But Generally, uh, she is a very talented young art student uh, who has a difficult life because of cultural and social circumstances that are beyond her control. And those circumstances uh, create a very, inter- a very interesting character. I happen to really love Serena. She wasn't even in the story to begin with, but when the immigration uh, situation became more and more important to my story because the more I learned about the racism at that time and how it connected to the racism today, I needed a character to express what I was thinking, and that was Serena. So she's uh, very close to my heart, this this young woman. Yes.
1: So let's talk a little bit about that situation because it's really a major theme of the novel is the racism specifically against Japanese and Chinese immigrants, which was all too widespread in California and the United States as a whole uh, in the 1920s. So what is the situation of Japanese residents in Carmel as it's revealed early in your story?
2: They're unaccepted. The Chinese uh, came before the Japanese to Monterey. Monterey was originally, uh, and still is on some level, a fishing village. And it was a perfect location for the Chinese to come. It reminded them of their homeland. Um, They were searching for a new home, and they settled in Monterey. The Chinese were less willing to... uh, immerse themselves into the American culture. They kept pretty much to themselves. They wore the clothes of their country and they spoke mostly Chinese. They did not try to integrate. They did not, uh, they spoke very little English. But when the Japanese arrived, they had a different, they took a different direction. They wanted to immerse. They wanted it to be their new home. They wanted to contribute to our country. They wanted to offer what they knew and what they could give to our country. Um, so they dressed in Western clothing. They insisted on their children uh, learning English, and they really tried hard to belong. They had they lived in their own small communities, but they tried to integrate as much as they could. Unfortunately, the uh, the, the white folk uh, were less willing to take them in. They didn't want their children going to their schools. There was an incredible competition. With the fishermen, uh, even though there were so many fish in that sea at the time, there was more than enough for everyone. But they found the Japanese um, were taking over their land, shall we say, or, or their sea, and were highly competitive, and that they were more successful as fishermen than than their than their white than the white community. So there was a tremendous amount of resentment, and that's when they stopped uh, started taking control and closing out the Japanese businesses, taking away their property, creating laws uh, that made it very difficult for the Japanese to, to live uh, in Monterey. Um, from that, uh, was when I was writing, I wrote started writing this before the lockdown, before a lot more problems have come up, racial problems. But as I kept working, and things started happening outside in the world around me, as I said, it became more and more of an important part of my story. I think, you know, it's a hundred year, I don't know, there's something about 1920s and 2020s. So the, the, things happened in the 1920s, like the radio was invented, the telephone came in, the record player, and we have something very similar happening in our country today in the 2020s with technology. But on top of that was also uh, the racism of the 1920s. The Ku Klux Klan were incredibly popular. It was the largest membership ever in America was in the 1920s. Several of our congressmen were members of the Ku Klux Klan, but at that time they had no problem acknowledging it and being proud of the fact that they were members of the Ku Klux Klan. So all of that, you know, when you're writing a novel, I think it's always, there's no way you can keep out what's all around you. But I found it so fascinating that my 1920s seemed to start looking like the 2020s when it came to racial issues.
1: Something else that's all around is prohibition at this time. And uh, Serena... Introduces Sarah to her friends and more generally to social life in Carmel and Monterey, uh, which is surprisingly lively given uh, the existence of prohibition. One of these friends is Robert, who is also an artist, but with a camera instead of a paintbrush. Uh, Sarah's rather taken by him, isn't she?
2: She is. Uh, back to the the conflict between her and her sister. She always considered uh, Ada was a, a flaming redhead and gorgeous, and. Sarah always uh, had a, felt that her sister was the beauty in the family, and when they were, when they both were with men socially, she always felt all the attention went to Adabelle. Well, Adabelle is gone, and she's here in Carmel by herself, and she hasn't had that many uh, relationships. Her one relationship was with a young man who uh, was killed in in World War One. So when she meets Robert, who is a wonderful character, I I often think of Clark Gable when I was writing about Robert, Um, she couldn't help but feel an an attraction toward him. And she was so pleased that he seemed to to share that attraction, where before she was the ignored sister. Now, her Sister Adabelle was gone, and suddenly she was having a relationship with someone, and she was very excited by it. Yes.
1: A less savory character is uh, Paul DeVray, uh, Ada Bell's former dealer. Uh, what do we need to know about him?
2: He was uh, he was really fun to create. Um, Paul DeVray is uh, a pretty, I guess, besides the <laughs> sheriff, uh, he would be my stereotypical artist dealer. And right away, I want to say that all art dealers are not terrible people. Um, there are good there are good artist managers in the world. I worked in the music industry for many years as an artist manager, and I was very familiar with the relationship between artist managers and artists, and how vulnerable it can be for an artist. Uh, they don't really understand the business of art. They really don't want to know anything about it. They just want to do their own work, and they want to get to get recognition, and they look to their dealers or their managers to do that for them. And often, uh, unfortunately, uh, this this can come, it can become very vulnerable and in a bad relationship with the dealer who will take advantage of them. So for me to put in Paul Debray was sort of taking a, a look back at, at the art, art dealers and artist managers I'd known in my own life. And I created this Paul Debray. Uh, but again, but I will say again that often there are art dealers and artist managers that are terrific and do great things for their artists, just not this particular Paul DuBois.
1: Well, you can't write a novel without having a few people who are self-interested or uh, uncooperative or <laughs> just flat-out evil. <laughs> you
2: know? yeah, it's fun, right? I and mean, it's, kind of, it's fun to have a character like that. Of
1: course. <laughs> Let's just talk out all our things that we would never do in real life, right? So let's move to the opposite extreme now, because I can't let you go without asking you about Albert. Uh, how did Albert get into the story? And I guess you better tell them, who, tell the listeners who Albert is.
2: Yes. Uh, uh, Albert is this wonderful uh, little dog uh, that I couldn't, uh, he's a Jack Russell. Um, and uh, when I was writing and started artist colony, I was living on a, a uh, literally a, a mountain ridge above Carmel Valley. It was very isolated where we were. It's the kind of place where you don't forget to bring your milk home. And I was alone in the cabin with my with my imagination and my characters who kept, kept me company. And I was missing my dogs. I've always had a dog in my life. Um, but when we moved up up to this mountain ridge, it didn't make sense at the time because we were traveling a lot. So what do you do when you miss a dog? (laughs) You create one, right? (laughs) So I put Albert into my story and he kept me company through some very long nights. Um, uh, and he's he's very, yeah. He's just a very wonderful character. Andy kept me company. He, he knows a lot. Dogs know, as we all know, dogs know a lot. They're very smart, uh, but they're mute. And uh, it was fun for me in the story because he knew everything. Albert knew, knew he knows everything, but he can't tell anybody. So he's often trying to uh, clue the clueless humans uh, up to what? going on, you know, and he'll often just look up at Sarah and go, what are you doing? Can't you figure this out? I just showed you where it happened. I just showed you this. Clue. Um, so it was just a lot of fun to have him, have him in, the, in the story.
1: And he was a lot of fun to read, too. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, of course, he's very real for me, Albert. Uh, he did keep me company on Long Lonely nights.
1: What would you like people to take away from the artist colony?
2: Well... The Pleasure of Reading a Page-Turner Mystery, uh, I loved writing it, and I always hope that people will love reading that. Uh, I did try and... Uh, it, it's not... It just... It, yeah, it's a page-turner. I, I, I love writing page-turners, so I, I, want, I want them to have the great enjoyment of reading a page-turner mystery, but also a, a deeper respect and tolerance for people who are different and how enriched and fabulous our world is because we were all immigrants once upon a time. And I'd say most important that uh, history repeats itself if we don't learn anything from our past behavior. Um, that's it. I'd be very happy if people took all that away from the artist comedy.
1: <laughs> this novel has just come out. Uh, do you already
2: have another in the works? Oh, they say in France, oh la la. Um, I am in France now thinking that very question, worrying about that very question. I've just set up my office. We just came over from the States, Um, and this is usually where my new projects begin. I've thought about a sequel just because I love Albert's company, and I like my characters a lot, so I see bringing them back in. But each of my books have been different, so I'm not sure I want to write another mystery though I love mysteries. And I'm living in an 18th century stone house in a medieval village that still has narrow cobblestone streets and foot-worn stone staircases. So why not? Why not write a mystery? But I don't know. I have no idea at this moment what I'm going to write about. I look forward to the blank page and quiet moments.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Joanna. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I look forward to reading new books.
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Joanna Fitzpatrick about the artist colony. Find out more about her at www.joannafitzpatrick.com Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.